online at kpfa.org. Up next, Javelin's Bistro. Welcome to Javelin's Bistro, and the music that introed me into you was by Theodore Weisinger, Jr. He's a local musician here in the Bay Area, and the name of the CD is called I'm Reaching Out, a songwriter CD compilation of all of his hits. Thank you for joining us today, Javelin's Bistro, and let me give you the number if you'd like to join me on the line and talk to my guests, who I'll tell you about in a couple seconds. But the call and number for those in the 510 area code is 510-848-4425. And outside of that area is 800-958-9008. So as always, if you have questions or thoughts, do feel free to pick up your cell phone and dial in. Enjoy listening. Today's guest. I have is a writer, and she is having her first novel was published, and it is coming out this month, June. Her name is Pauline Knabel Williams, and the name of the novel novel is called Finding Hollis. Finding Hollis is set in 1944, North Minneapolis. It's a journey in search in search of more than just a name. Pauline was born and raised along with her 11 siblings in North Minneapolis. She attended McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she studied sociology and history. She currently resides in Vorlees, New Jersey, and teaches pre- preschool children. She lives with her husband and two children in a house with 38 windows. Welcome, Pauline. How are you this afternoon? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, did I do that middle name right? No. <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. I'm not used to saying it anymore. Tell us, uh, uh, pronounce that for me. Canably. Canably, Pauline Canably Williams. So this is your first novel, as I've said. Yes, and uh, actually it came out last week, so it is <gasps> out out there in the world. It's really new, and it was done by 40 Press? Yes, 40 Press out of Minnesota. Okay, so let's right off the top let people know the details in, in case in the midst of it all they start to hear the story and they want to buy one of your books to read. How would they get, go okay. about getting that? Um, well, first of all, the title of the book is called Finding Hollis, okay. and it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, so you could just type in the title, and mm-hmm. it would pop up. Um, but you're also welcome to visit my website, which um, would give you a little bit more about the book and also a link to purchasing it. And my webpage is www.paulinekanabley, K-N-A-E-B as in boy, L-E, Williams.com. Okay, great. So now, Pauline, what started you on the journey with this particular body of work? Uh, Well, it's been a a long journey, Mm -hmm. um, but it's been very fun. And um, I just began, oh, about 10 years ago, um, I had written a memoir, and I 
had the memoir was essentially about the relationship with my husband and what it was like before we met um being an interracial couple and the things that we had to go through um and so i wrote the memoir sent it out to an agent the first agent i sent it to said oh i'd like to read the whole thing so then i panicked that was on a friday and thought i i need to I need to say I'm writing something else. So then I started the novel on the weekend. Well, of course, she didn't call for like a year. <laughs> I think I had to call her. But in the meantime, I got into the novel. And um, really, the novel comes out of the stories that my mom and my dad, but mostly my mom, told me of what life was like when they grew up in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And it was just fascinating to me to compare the differences between what life was like in the 40s from when I grew up in Minneapolis and what life was like in the 60s. So I really um, tried to capture the feel of of what uh, what came through to me through their stories, and then the and then the storyline itself is purely fictitious, um, but it just flowed naturally after having you know just a setting that was it just, to me it just like dripped with um, what I would want my life to be like. Well, you know, like what compels me to want to write and make my life richer and deeper and that's by jumping into a story and um kind of escaping into it or ex- and exploring another world so that's what i kind of hope i've created through the story and actually when you say that in terms of your writing you want you want your own life to be reflective of the body of the work that you create your character francis Mm-hmm. Th- that's the the main character. There's a, a uh, there's a part where it's the be- the story begins on a bus. Mm-hmm. She's riding a bus in a predominantly white community. Why don't you take us into the story, the the arch of what's happening in the beginning? Okay, um, she's actually riding the streetcar because in those days, unlike now, there were streetcars in Minneapolis. So she's riding home from work, similar to what my mom told me she was doing in 1944, riding home into her neighborhood. And when I grew up in this neighborhood, it was um, a neighborhood full of Native American people, African American people, and white people, all mainly living beside each other, but not necessarily together. And when I talked to my mom about her childhood, well, she said, I can't really even remember seeing black people except for once in a while. So that really fascinated me, how things could change so much and how her reality could be different. So Frances gets, is riding the streetcar home, and um, a black woman comes on, and she's perplexed by that. And she tries to imagine where this woman who's dressed in a nicely pressed outfit and her hair is done well and she has sensible shoes where she could be going and she can't possibly think of where it might be because her imagination has not had to explore and what people the... unlike her would be doing on a friday evening on the streetcar uh can you read an excerpt in the beginning absolutely okay. okay i'll just start right at the beginning of the story okay francis could not recall a colored woman ever riding this line most of the black people, and there were not many, lived in small pockets in other parts of the city. She took note of the woman's perfectly ironed dress, and it being a Friday evening was tempted to assume the woman was off to someplace intriguing. Yet Frances wasn't able to imagine just where that might be. The trolley jerked into motion. The man next to her shifted in his seat, lifting his hat as he ran his fingers through his hair, the scent of pomade growing stronger. 
She had noticed the mild fragrance when she first boarded the streetcar, how it mixed with the evening air that drifted in through the one open window. Advertisements for shoe polish and chewing gum gleamed above the heads of the many passengers. Familiar people she almost knew. On her left, a lady holding a sack of beets hummed quietly, and across the way, a boy squirmed in his mother's lap, a tuft of blonde hair falling across his forehead. A shaft of sunlight skirted and then held in an unsteady line across the floor, making everything in its slim path shimmer and dance. Frances prided herself on her keen observation of details. Now, as they turned onto Broadway, she looked out at the sidewalks strewn with people bustling between storefronts and parked cars, eager to get home to their evening meal, paying no mind to the passing trolley with its unusual rider, nor to an old pickup truck moving along the avenue. Passing Pearson's shoe store, Frances spotted its owner, one knee dull against the hardwood floor, helping a customer. This was her stop. She clutched her sweater and got up. She took notice of the sunlight now streaming in honey-like through the front windows, then turned her full attention to the back of the car, curious about the woman who had also begun to move toward the door. By the time they reached their mutual destination, Frances found herself standing just behind her. As she waited, she took in the woman's hair pinned up neatly, her stockings, the sensible black shoes, the matching gray handbag with a pearl-colored latch. But what was most impressive was how firmly her shoulders maintained a line and her neck held her head so gracefully. Frances straightened her own torso, drawing herself up taller, then allowed her gaze to linger on the woman's skin, the back of her neck, and then her arm, a creamy brown color that was really no more than a few shades darker than her own. She studied the woman's gray dress, realizing she had mistaken a pattern of tiny sailboats on a choppy sea for yellow flowers. The door began to open and the woman reached for the rail. The grace and composure captured in her posture gave way for a brief moment before Frances's eye to an underlying sense of uncertainty as her hand, extended in midair, trembled. Finally, just as the squeaking sound of the door ceased, she seized the metal rail, leaning into it as she stepped down. When she released her grip, Frances watched the yellow sailboat sink into the street, thinking she had discerned something small but significant about the stranger. This last thought was, sh was shattered by what happened next, for as the woman stepped into the street, the truck lurched past the open door. The deep rattle of its motor and the force of its dense, crushing body collided with Frances's neatly stacked perception of the order of things around her. All at once, there was no sense to cuff pant legs, to filing cabinets, to egg salad sandwiches sliced diagonally, to having one dollar from each paycheck put into war bonds. Everything that she counted on, that defined her day, that kept her on track, was dismantled. There was nothing but the space in front of her where the woman had stood and a million atoms rushing in to fill it. Okay. So I want you to continue because I want the listening audience to uh, to hear what happened in that moment. Those moments that followed the atoms that came in to fill the space. Okay. She gasped as she descended into the street, fleeing after the moving vehicle, the woman's dress caught on the back fender. For a few long moments, the body dragged behind until the truck rounded a corner and the fabric tore away. The vehicle kept going. The victim rolled once, twice. Things in motion have a tendency to stay in motion, spun through Frances' thoughts as she ran faster, panting hard. 
the woman's body came to an awkward and final stop. Francis let out a small cry and knelt down. The shoes were gone, the clothes torn, the skin on her bare arm shredded. She lay on her back, her face turned up toward the evening sky. With a trembling hand, Francis laid her sweater over the woman's hip to cover where the dress had frayed. The woman was still alive, her face relatively unmarred, and her eyes appeared deep as a well. Frances hovered and then fell into them, losing her balance, her hearing, her sense of time. She stayed there swimming in the stranger's eyes for longer than she would ever remember. Until at last the woman spoke. Her voice was clear and firm, and her words uttered without repetition. Find Hollis. And just like that, her eyes closed. Her forehead, her heart, the top of her smashed thigh eased toward the back of her body, which no longer felt the bite of the pavement, which no longer felt anything. She did not move again. Slowly, Frances looked up at the circle of people who had gathered. She thought to yell for someone to dial for an ambulance, but her voice, dry like a leaf, caught in her throat. Mm. So the woman has died. Yes. And as I... Uh, read parts of your novel one of the things that stood out for me is that Frances actually hesitated to getting off the trolley in order for this woman to go first and that she'd have a more time to be able to to look at her mm-hmm. how does this impact Frances well I think it 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 kind of forces Francis to um, take the request of the dying woman and um, stick with it because she tries to let go of it for a while. She tries to think that she has solved the problem or at least, uh, she, you know, she goes and meets uh, Hazel, the dying woman's parents, and tells them what Hazel had told her and then she thinks she's done with it. But she ends up not being done with it because it haunts her. And I think part of the haunting is because she has a certain sense of um, guilt or responsibility that it could have been her that stepped out in in front of the moving car and that nags at her. So who are some of the other characters uh, that you have written about to support this story, to tell the story Uh of Finding Hollis? Well, there's Cotton. Cotton is the woman who died who dies, her fiancé, and he, in fact, is waiting on the corner in the jewelry shop, and Hazel has taken the streetcar to meet him to buy a wedding ring because they've decided to get married. So, um, along with Frances's story as the novel moves along is Cotton's, who has come up from the South, and his story is juxtaposed against Frances's and how their realities differ, and yet how their paths cross and, um, how they impact upon each other. The scene that after she's hit by this truck and it carries her and she's dead, she speaks to Francis. There is a group, uh, a crowd that has gathered. Talk about what happens in those moments following her lying in the street. I'm, and I'm really put, um, particularly interested in Mr. Persons. I think okay. he's a shoe salesman. Talk about his experience with, there's a group of people in a neighborhood that's not accustomed to Negroes. And certainly there is a Negro in the middle of the street and she is dead. Mm-hmm. She has been killed by a truck. And here comes Mr. Persons. Let's talk about... Um, Maybe you could uh, read that, where he comes into Sure, sure. From his shoe shop, Mr. Pearson had heard the truck's muffler. 
as it rumbled alongside the streetcar. There seemed to him a pause, a lapse of that was not void of sound, for surely the truck continued to rumble, and the whistle of the 528 rolled up from the train yard, but a pause that nonetheless made Mr. Pearson stand up and cock his head to the side. Then came the cacophony of cries that drove him to the door. Without taking time to grab his hat, he fled the length of two blocks, weaved through the crowd and bent down next to Francis. He was startled to see before him a dark-skinned woman and then flooded with a sense of impropriety, not only because the torn dress revealed part of her thigh, but for the fact that he had never before been in close proximity to a colored woman. Mr. Pearson watched her chest, waiting for it to rise. When it didn't, he considered holding her wrist to try for a pulse, but decided against it. Shouldn't we call for help, Francis asked, finding her voice. She knew the woman was dead, but it seemed impossible that there was nothing left to do. Yes, Mr. Pearson answered. The closest payphone hung in a booth up another block and across the street. He had never used it. Don't worry, he muttered unconvincingly, staring at Francis's shoulder. Don't worry. So, so go ahead. Yeah, so you're listening for the listeners. This is Pauline Williams uh, talking, reading from her book, Finding Hollis, a novel that just came out last week. If you're interested in calling in to talk about or ask questions to Pauline about the novel, uh, she just read an excerpt of Mr. Uh, Pearson's Mm-hmm. That uh, one of the shoe uh, salesperson in the neighborhood who comes out to to witness this and to respond to this. Now, in the story, her fiance, he's already at the jewelry store mm-hmm. when he realizes something has happened, but he doesn't turn around. He's because he doesn't want trouble. Mm-hmm. And so he stays there long enough until something tells him, though, that this is his woman, his fiance. There's something in the, the language of the writing that alarms him that something um, is happening uh, to her. And when he goes there, I found it interesting that he picks her body up, holds it to him. Francis has her purse. And as she begins to put it close to him, he doesn't want the purse between him and his fiance, And he goes to sit down. Now, it seems odd in 2014 that one can pick up a body from the street. But it doesn't seem odd in the story. And even when the police arrive, there's a sort of odd interaction between the police officer and Cotton. As if, and from reading it, as if it's like, we, you need to take care of this, and he even offers him a lift to where he needs to go. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Is that something that you, that was accurate to the times in which you're speaking of in, in the 1940s? Well, you know, um, where this is a, or was this a writer's choice to magnify the uh, sort of imbalance of equality between people, and in terms of how one handles something as enormous as death but yet it's handled in two different ways when it's this negro woman and sort of the sort of almost like a you know carelessness about it like let's just let's just get this over with and where do you need a lift home with with a body right talk to um, to us about that okay yeah a little bit of both um when I talked to my mom, there actually was an incident where I had a great aunt who stepped off the streetcar and her dress was caught in a fender and she was dragged to her death. It was a few years before, the, it was in the 20s. 
so that that incident um always stuck stood with me and um you know that i found myself writing about it in the story and at the time i said well what happened and she said they just carried her home and laid her on the couch and a couple hours later she died and now i know that's 20 years different yeah. but i also i just thought that just kind of showed how times have changed so much and so then when it when i brought it into my novel i thought some of that would show the time but then it would also show just what you had pointed out about the the disparity between how a situation may have been handled that there it didn't even seem to be a crime that happened it was just an unfortunate event that we needed to kind of clear away so um i think what i what um i found really interesting as i wrote it and as i brought characters in is that i had to figure out how each character would handle the issue of race and it it was it was interesting because it made me realize well, i mean i kind of knew beforehand but it made me realize even more deeply how when when we in america talk about racism we act like it's some tangible thing when it's so different and subtle to so many different people so francis compared to someone else seems very open and and yet it, throughout the book there were times when you know her racism or her perspective slanted her view in a negative way and and then what's a snapshot to, tell us give me a snapshot of what that looked like in her well let me think actually her father uh, jumps into my mind so he's he's a really her father is what makes what uh her father is who taught Francis to um look at the world a certain way and her father is very open-minded and he is the guy that people go to they knock they knock on their back door so they can get a sandwich when they have nothing else to eat and he's as poor as poor can be but he always finds something to feed them he's the guy that when he walks down the street says hi to all the guys that don't have anywhere to live so he's that kind of guy but yet even him found in a scene where he is confronted by cotton he finds like why is this man talking to me like this and he stops short of um analyzing it deeply enough to realize that he has issues he doesn't realize he has a, 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 about around being spoken to by a black man so so it was like it was just interesting to see how each character harbors their racism in different ways according you know along with the white people in the story and how then my black characters and my native american characters how they see the world differently from each other um so i really enjoyed um being able to explore race through my characters and on that note when i think about when cotton first came upon the woman that he loves the woman that he is asked to marry him the woman that he has asked her to come to this area this predominantly white area well a predominantly white area to go to a jewelry store to pick out the engagement ring which she insists on picking out herself but he met a man who was white who said oh come to my store in this neighborhood and you can choose the ring and for whatever reason he said yes maybe that was his subtle way of trying to push up against whatever feelings he might have in terms of race issues so he goes to the store and she follows on a trolley and dies now 
when he shows up at the scene, as I said, and he picks he picks up her body and holds it close to him. He doesn't even want uh, the her pocketbook between him and her because this is all he has of her. Mm-hmm. And he sits on the bench. And as a woman of color, as a black woman reading that, I he wants his instincts is to sob, to cry, to begin the grieving process. The shock of it all, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, instead of doing that, he just sits there and holds like he has to hold himself upright. But before you respond to that, we have a caller uh, okay. calling in. Um, and I forgot the name, but caller, Jane. Jane from St. Paul, Minnesota? Uh-huh. Hi, how you doing? Welcome to KPFA. Uh, hi. Hi, how are you? you have a question or comment? You know, I just finished the book, and I loved it, and I keep thinking about the characters. They're just walking around in my mind, and I just, I love the development of them. But what I wanted to talk about was I was struck more than once by the poetry in the in the, your writing and how you use words to sort of bring things to life in a way that I would just, kept connecting to poetry so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that are you a poet um i actually did start writing um poetry that was the first kind of writing i did so um i don't do too much poetry anymore but i i don't really feel like i need to because i feel like i incorporate into my fiction and yeah i mean to me i write because I want to say something that no one else can say, and I want to use words. It's not even what I say, it's how I say it. I want to say something in a way that no one else can. And that, to me, really is what creativity is all about, is finding that within you to offer to the world that no one else can, because there's only one of you. So, um, that, and that's why I love to do it, and I, I just love to see what's going to happen. And when I'm writing best, it's when it's just flowing out of me, and I'm using mostly intuition and I'm using whatever I've learned throughout the whole process of my life and absorbed more on an emotional level than an intellectual level and it, then it's just flowing back out of me. And certainly, first of all, Jane, I appreciate your uh, sharing your thoughts around uh, the poetic language that Pauline has um, used to actually examine difficult social situations between people not only in a time in history in the 1940s but also uh issues that we still because it's still at the we're still at the early space of of uh learning how to connect as as people from different cultures so we haven't gotten through that yet and the more people who join us in um, this democracy in america the more we will um, even be challenged more so to have something to read so poetically given soft spoonful for hard things that's um, that that's to digest, soft spoonfuls of language that one might have a difficult time digesting. That's what I'm hearing that you're saying, Jane. Yeah, exactly. I just think, um, right, difficult subjects and uh, coming at them in this way that is so human and so emotional and so like things that we can all connect through these characters. And so, Pauline, before, so thanks a lot, uh, Jane, for calling. We appreciate your comments. Thank you. So, Pauline, in terms of, so Cotton is sitting there on on a bench. He's holding her. He wants to cry. And you use the trees. Tell it, can you read that small bit in the last, we just have a couple more minutes to spend time with you as a writer. Can you read that part? 
Sure, let's see. Um, okay, so Cotton has uh, picked up France, uh, picked up Hazel and Hazel's body and walked a little bit, and then she's too heavy and he needs to sit down at the curb. So he's sitting on the curb, and I'll read from here. It had been a quiet evening in North Minneapolis. The war on, but the depression over. Now with the commotion, neighbors gathered on their front porches. Cotton sat, begrudging the people around him. He wanted Hazel all to himself. He wished to call her name, find some part of her still present, but not while they watched. He would not, despite the urging of the trees above him, bow his head toward her chest and weep. Rather, he, he stared at her eyelids, drove his attention into the smooth, soft mounds, trying to get in. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you so much. You're You've been welcome. listening to Pauline Williams talk about her finding Hollis, and she gave the information on the website earlier. But you can get it on the website if you listen later to the program. If you're interested in getting the book, you can go to Amazon. Thank you. Javelin's Bistro. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Dance Collective invites you to their fifth annual Fallen Heroes Rising Stars, a Juneteenth celebration through dance, honoring African-American musical artists that have died since 2000, but will inspire us for years to come. A fun, family-friendly, uplifting evening of dance, music, and American history. The performances take place at 8 p.m. on Friday, June 27th at the Diablo Valley College Theater in Pleasant Hill, and on Saturday, June 28th at the California Theater in Pittsburgh. This is a benefit for Grown Women Dance Collective work to create cross-cultural, cross-generational bridges through the arts while challenging stereotypes of aging. For more info, call 925-680-4400 or visit grownwomendance.org. This event is wheelchair accessible.